Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Are you enjoying March Madness? As of this morning, the original 64 teams have been whittled down to six. cool thing about March Madness is that even if the school I went to isn't in it, I can pick a school and they can be my team. If they lose, I can pick another school and they can be my team. I was pulling for SIU because of their proximity. I grew up in Nashville, so I grew up rooting for Vanderbilt, so I was pulling for those two schools. Now that they're gone, I think my team might be North Carolina because the Hansborough kid from Poplar Bluff plays for them, and if they win, I can say I saw him play in high school. And I'll also say, I picked them from the beginning. (laughs) See, it's all about bragging rights. But you know, that isn't limited to March in the NCAA tournament. There is a madness that goes on year-round in every arena of life. We are always fighting for bragging rights. You can call it a sign of insecurity or just a normal human pastime. But if you're anything like me, I often compare myself to other people. I'm not as bright as David, but I have a lot more sense than Bill. I don't know as much about computers as Todd, but I've forgotten more than Patrick has ever known. Just picking names out of the hat. (laughs) Mike is more athletic than me, but I can run circles around Jim. If I could just get a break, I'm I'm a better singer than those people on American Idol. And of course, I'm a lot more humble than Ernie. (laughs) See, the reality is, that that's the American pastime and the British pastime and the German pastime and it was the Corinthian pastime because we all have a pride problem. We all have a natural inclination to fight for bragging rights. So if you're a human being, then you can relate to the comparison syndrome and this passage is for you because this passage is designed to show us exactly where we fit on the comparison scale. This passage is designed to put us in our place, to turn our pride into humility, to redirect my bragging from me to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-31 to 31 clarifies where the bragging rights are in the Christian life. You know, I've been reading and studying the Bible for over 30 years. And there is one thing that clearly confirms to me that the Bible is the Word of God. There is one thing that clearly confirms to me that it's God's revelation to man. That it's not something that man made up. And you know what that is? If mankind had gone about the task of producing the Bible, they never would have come up 
with this. They would have come up with a plan with an emphasis on man. It would have been me working hard to get to God. It would have been me working to achieve my salvation. We would have come up with a a tournament with brackets and seating and winners and losers. Because if you look at every man-made religion, that's what they all have in common. It is man going up to God. But God's plan is just the opposite. God's plan is that God came down to man. And instead of man doing the work of salvation, God did it. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was God manifest in the flesh, dying for our sins, dying in our place, dying as our substitute. And when He said, it is finished, He meant it. The work was done. Salvation was accomplished. You see, salvation is not a trophy that you get for winning. Salvation is not a paycheck that you get for something you have done. Salvation is not a loan for something you're promising to do for God in the future. Salvation is a gift. And the nature of a gift is that it's paid for by the giver. And the only thing that we have to do to receive God's gift is receive it. The only thing God leaves for us to do is accept it by simple, childlike faith. And so instead of being complex, God's message is simple. He has done all the work, and salvation is a gift received by faith. And yet the paradox is that though it's simple, yet it manifests the wisdom of God. Though it's simple, yet its wisdom far exceeds the wisdom of this world. And that's been Paul's point beginning in verse 18 of this chapter. And in verse 20 he says that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. How did He make the wisdom of this world foolish? By the simple message of the cross of Christ. Because you see, whoever depends on this world's wisdom is going to miss God. He's not going to come to know God because he will view the cross of Jesus as foolishness. And God in his wisdom planned it that way. He planned it so that human wisdom is not a condition for salvation. You don't have to be a Phi Beta Kappa to become a Christian. In fact, human wisdom not only doesn't lead you to Christ, it actually leads you away from Christ. I had someone tell me last week that they have a relative who criticizes their Christian faith and says, well, Christianity is just a crutch. And I said, next time they tell you that, tell them, no, Christianity is not a crutch. Christianity is a wheelchair. Because I don't just need a crutch. I need for God to do all the work. And those who rely on human wisdom look at the cross of Jesus Christ and the Gospel message and they view it as foolishness. They view it 
as madness. And then Paul goes on to support that fact beginning in verse 26 by showing that in God's plan, all the bragging rights go to God. And why does God get all the glory? Two reasons. There are two simple points in this passage. He's going to tell you who you aren't, and he's going to tell you who you are. He tells you who you aren't, and then the conclusion in verses 26 to 29, and the conclusion in verse 29 begins with the words, so that no man may may boast before God. Then he's going to tell you who you are in verses 30 and 31, with the conclusion in verse 31, so that... Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he tells you who you're not, which gives God all the glory. He's going to tell you who you are, which also gives God all the glory. Two reasons. First of all, let's look at who you aren't in verses 26 to 29. Notice verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble. Now that word consider means look around. Go ahead. Look around. Who's sitting next to you? Look at your calling as believers. Look around and see who your brothers and sisters are, or more particularly, who they aren't. He says, not many wise according to the flesh. Look on your row. You see any philosophers? Do you see any world-renowned scholars? Do you see any of the great intellects of this world here this morning? You see, he is saying that you are exhibit A. You make the point that human wisdom doesn't bring people to Christ. You see, as we look around this room, we are made up of mostly plain, vanilla people. Not many wise, not many mighty. You see any real influential people here today? Any of the world's real powerful people sitting next to you? And then he says, not many noble. You see any kings? Any princes, any well-born people? During the greeting time, did anybody tell you they were the Duke of somewhere or, the, or Princess Maria? You say, Dan, I think I found one. Well, there are some. Paul says, not many. Lady Hamilton a believer who was among the English nobility in the early part of the 20th century used to say that she was saved by an M. Because verse 26 doesn't say not any. It says not many. These are three things upon which the world bases greatness. Wisdom, intellect, might, which is influence, popularity, fame, riches, athleticism, and nobility, which is status or rank, having the right last name or the right title. You see, those aren't the kind of people God chose. Who did God choose? Look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. God didn't choose the wise and the mighty and the noble or the highborn. He chose the foolish and the weak and the base, the lowborn. Why? He did it to shame the wise and the mighty. You see, we are a living rebuke to the wise and the mighty and the noble because in all their wisdom and might and nobility, they don't have what matters most. Salvation. You see, the very things that put them ahead in the world may actually put them behind with God. And though they may consider us to be foolish and weak and base and despised in the things which are not or worthless, we've been chosen by God. We have salvation in Jesus Christ. I ran into someone I went to high school with a couple weeks ago. She said to me, you know, in high school, I would have never imagined that you would be leading the church. Me either. What she was really saying was, in high school, I wouldn't have even imagined you being in church. Ninth grade, I did a family tree. Went into it thinking, I'm going to find some real plums in our family. It was a bit of an embarrassment. Went back, did this family tree, and everybody was talking. The, the, the biggest, shot, biggest shot we had in our family was a guy named Al Smith, who ran for president in 1928 against Herbert Hoover. Well, I went back in the family tree and found out he was a relative by marriage. The, the, the only really notorious person in our family was a pirate off the coast of Ireland. He eventually landed, and, and our family was from Ireland. And we, most of the people in our family were just potato farmers, uneducated potato farmers in Ireland, and most of them alcoholics. So you see, if there was a tournament based on wisdom and might and nobility, I would have been seated 16th if I got in the field. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you need evidence that human wisdom doesn't lead people to God, just look around. For the most part, believers are just plain folk. In the world's rating system, foolish, weak, base, despised, the things that are not. And that was especially evident in the first century because the great number of believers in the early church were actually slaves. So they were literally those who were not. They belonged to somebody else, didn't even have their own freedom or their own identity. You say, well, why would God do that? Why would God choose the foolish and the weak and the base over the wise and the mighty and the noble? Well, the answer is in verse 29. So that no man may boast before God. You see, it's all about bragging rights. 
If God had made salvation dependent on human wisdom or human might or nobility, who would get the glory? Man would. See, I could say I'm so intelligent that I figured out the gospel. Yeah, the gospel was tough, but I'm a pretty bright guy. And I hung in there, and I stayed with it, and I battled it, and I struggled with it, and I studied, and I figured it out, and I'm so persistent that finally I got in. And I would be bragging for eternity. And the rest of you would be in heaven asking for a transfer because you wouldn't be able to stand me for eternity. You know, I find it strange that we think so highly of the wisdom of the world when God thinks so little of it. See, so many Christians running around chasing after, you know, this powerful person or this famous person or thinking, boy, if, if, if that person just would become a Christian, everybody would get saved. God's plan is just the opposite. The wisdom of this world keeps people away from God. In fact, there's an interesting verse in Luke chapter 16 and verse 15 where Jesus says, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Why does God detest human wisdom? Well, because the world's wisdom is inseparable from the world's pride. And the Bible makes it very clear that God is opposed to the proud. Businessman Howard Butt helps us understand why. Listen to what he said. He said, it's my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to feel I am the master of my fate. I run my own life. I call my own shots. I go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people, and I can't ultimately rely on myself. I am dependent on God for my very next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I am anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It's not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell. See, that's why in God's plan, verse 29 says, no man may boast. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. You see, God made the gospel simple. 
And God made the condition for salvation, not wisdom or might or nobility, but faith. And God chose the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised and the things which are not. Why? So that he would get all the glory. Who do you owe your salvation to? Your wisdom? Your strength? Your prestige? No. You owe it all to Jesus Christ because he did it all. You see God's wisdom? In order for God to get the most glory, he made sure that you had the least to do with your salvation. So bragging rights go to God for who you aren't. Secondly, bragging rights go to God for who you are in verses 30 and 31. Now, after reading the first part of this passage, that you're foolish, weak, base, despised, that you are the things that are not, you might start to get an inferiority complex. So look at verse 30. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The world may view me as foolish and weak and base and despised and worthless, but you know what I am? Because I am in Jesus Christ, I'm wise. Because I am in Jesus Christ, I know more than all the wise men of this world combined. Because I'm in Christ, I know the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 9, I am the way, the truth. Jesus said in John 8.32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I'm wise. You're wise if you're in Christ. You see, I know some things this world doesn't know. You know what they are? Let me give you a sampling. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 6. It says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now that's a deep verse. The very God who turned darkness into light by creating the universe, has flipped the switch on in your heart. He's turned the light on in your heart. And what do you have? You have the knowledge of the glory of God. Now what's the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is all that God is. His nature is his attributes, his character. I, as a foolish, weak, base, despised person who is without in this world, I know the very glory of God. But that's not all. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9.
says, He has made known to us the mystery of His will. Now, what's His will? Well, it's not that whether you'll marry Sally or Sue. That's the way we think of God's will most of the time. He tells us what His will is in verse 10, and He sums it up by this. He says, it's the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In other words, God's will is His purpose for what's going on in this world today. It's the sweep of His plan. It's what God is at work doing in this world. And we know that. And then look down at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. The word hope and the word inheritance are future aspects. So, He's telling us that as believers, we know about the future. I don't know the timing, but I know what's going to happen. I've read the last chapter. So, when you are saved, you came to know God, God's plan, and your destiny. That's pretty good. So, as a Christian, you know where you came from, what you're doing here, and where you're going. Those are three things that the wisest person in this world apart from Christ does not know. He doesn't know where he came from. He thinks he was an amoeba swimming around in a primeval puddle. And one day he decided to crawl out and uh, crawled around for a while and then stood up and began to walk and became an ape and eventually became a human being. That's where he came from. He doesn't know what he's doing here. Because if, you're, if you came from an accidental Big Bang, then what would your purpose be on earth? You don't have any. College, I took a, a course in existentialism. Studied all the great philosophers. I don't know why they wrote books. Because they could have written their conclusion on one line. It was, there is no purpose in life. That's what they all came up with. You see, if, if you came from an accidental big bang, then you're just a glorified grapefruit. You don't have any purpose in life. So they don't know where they came from. They don't know why they're here. And guess what? They don't know where they're going. Individually, they're going to the grave and in their mind to extinction. As a society, we are one nuclear war away from annihilation. You know, if there were three things that I would want to know, it's those three things. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? The Christian knows them. And so that's why I say that the simplest Christian knows more about the things that really matter than all the philosophers and sages of this world. And all the glory goes to God. Did you notice verse 30? It begins, but by His doing, you are in Christ. Now his main point in this verse was wisdom, but Paul can't resist 
mentioning a few more things. So he says, Christ became to us wisdom. And then he says also, righteousness. What's that mean? That means to be right before God. To be sinless in His presence. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The greatest transaction that ever happened to me as a believer was when my sin was taken off of me and put on Christ. And Christ's righteousness was taken off of Him and put on me. I have Christ's righteousness as a believer, which means I am just as righteous as Jesus Christ. And then he mentions sanctification. That's a word that means to be set apart or made holy. Not only am I righteous positionally, but God begins a work in me to bring about holiness in my life practically. And then he mentions redemption, which is a word that means to buy back. It was used in that day of slaves who would go on the slave market and be purchased in the slave market. And he's saying that God by Christ has purchased us out of slavery to sin. There's a present aspect to that in the spiritual sense. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. But there's also a future aspect to that physically because Romans 8.23 says, there is coming the redemption of our body. So as a believer, you've got wisdom. You know what's going on. You've got righteousness. You know who you are before God. You've got sanctification. You know what you're becoming. And you've got redemption. You know who you'll be. Now, what did you do to learn wisdom? This kind of wisdom. Nothing. What did you do to earn righteousness? Nothing. What did you do to make yourself holy? Nothing. What did you do to redeem yourself? Nothing. So what's the point? Well, verse 31 says, So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. All that you are, wise, righteous, holy, redeemed, you owe it all to God. And what part did human wisdom have in it? None. It can't make you truly wise. It can't pay for your sin. It can't make you righteous. It can't transform your future. Only God can. And He has. And He gets all the glory. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. There's only one thing that I have to brag about. And that is that I know God through Jesus Christ. And how did that happen? It's all because of Him. So consider who you aren't in this world. Wise, mighty, noble. And consider who you are in Christ. 
wise, righteous, holy, redeemed, and give credit where credit is due. You see, the bragging rights belong to God. I'm going to have the praise team come back. I'm going to have us close our service today by acknowledging the Lord, by boasting in the Lord. We're going to sing that song, Your Name, that we learned this morning. It says, Your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Your name, let the nations sing it louder, because nothing has the power to save but Your name. And I want us to sing that in closing today as a cheer, if you like, to the Lord because He gets all the bragging rights. He is the one who has done it all. Let's stand as we close. I know there are some this morning that want to join. You come as we sing together, but let's really sing this to the Lord from our hearts and celebrate the victory that He has won on our behalf.